0: WFUV's Disharmony podcast is sponsored by Aspiration, the credit card that rewards customers for going carbon neutral to help combat climate change. One card, zero carbon footprint. Learn more at aspiration.com credit. Aspiration Financial, LLC. 18-year-old Swedish climate activist Greta Thunberg criticized world leaders at the UN Climate Action Summit in 2019. In her powerful speech... Thunberg said world leaders fail to take the bold actions necessary to solve the climate crisis. People are suffering. People are dying. Entire ecosystems are collapsing. We are in the beginning of a mass extinction, and all you can talk about is money and fairy tales of eternal economic growth. How dare you? Soon after Thunberg delivered the speech, a South African musician known as the Kiffness posted an EDM remix with Thunberg's voice that quickly went viral. Right here,
1: right now is where we draw
0: the line. The world is waking up. And change is coming whether you like it or not. Right here, right now. Right here, right now. Right here, right now. Fatboy right Slim later made his own version of the remix, set to his 1998 track, Right Here, Right Now. He played the remix to audiences at concerts and clubs in the UK. To the ice of
1: all
0: the is where Maddie Healy, frontman of the band The 1975, is an outspoken climate advocate. On the English indie pop group's 2020 record, Notes on a Conditional Form, the first track, titled The 1975, sets another one of Thunberg's speeches over an ambient soundscape. It starts out soft and gentle, but as the music builds, it makes her
1: hopeful words
0: stronger and more moving.
1: Now we all have a choice. We can create transformational action that will safeguard the living conditions for future generations we can continue with our business as usual, and fail.
0: That is up to you and me. By using Thunberg's words, these artists share her clear political message with their fans. Her message that we need to take serious actions to reduce global carbon emissions, now. How do other artists incorporate climate change as a political issue into their music and lyrics? Why is protest music so important to climate activism? I'm Courtney Berksieker with WFUV News, and this is Disharmony, How Music is Responding to Climate Change. In this series, I'm sitting down with musicians, authors, and organizations to talk about music and climate change. In this episode, we'll hear from two members of a multilingual jazz group whose political beliefs are at the core of their music. We'll also hear from an author who writes about the history of American protest songs. The Afro-Yaki Music Collective, based in Pittsburgh, is made up of a handful of musicians from different cultural backgrounds. The group came together in 2016 in response to the climate crisis and widespread attacks on immigrant communities. Two of the group's main members, Ben Barson and Hiselzanath Rodriguez, say they bridge activism with their music in their performances. One of their works is called Mirror Butterfly, the Migrant Liberation Movement Suite. It uses an indigenous myth from southern Mexico to show how colonization and environmental destruction displace communities. They advocate for women and indigenous leadership in climate and other social movements.
1: When you thought to break, try to find a tree, a place with water, the cruelty, sit with a comrade, some chocolate and a cat, or a little snail in the village with the shell. How did you
0: start the afro Yaqui Music Collective?
1: Ben and, ben and I met in New York um, and decided to move to Pittsburgh uh, right after we met. And in 2016 is when we first started the band.
2: Yeah, Giselle always, you know, is like a genius uh, panlingual singer. Like she knows five languages and has mastered all this Latin American repertoire. And I worked with um, a kind of like cadre or community of revolutionary free jazz musicians in New York. That included people like Fred Ho, who passed away in 2014, but was a Chinese American baritone saxophonist that mixed elements of the avant garde with radical politics and his own Asian American uh, heritage. And um, we wanted to Sort of fuse these worlds and influences, and also tap into Giselle's heritage as a uh, Indigenous Yaqui descended woman, and so we created a band that was sort of an homage to all of these parts of our lives.
0: Is there a political movement that inspires the group?
1: Yeah, yeah, we're inspired by um, eco-socialism. You know, we're inspired by Indigenous leadership. We're inspired by uh, practices that are rooted, um, that are centered uh, on the care, the care for the earth and the environment and, and ourselves.
2: And building off of what Giselle just said, um, at, at that time we had been traveling to southern Mexico annually to visit a social movement, and activist from a group called the Zapatista Movement, which are uh, majority indigenous Mayan uh, revolutionary kind of communalistic um matriarchal or woman women-centered movement that has been really central at building getting land back for native peoples in southern mexico at resisting these regimes of privatization and um like economic servitude that a lot of um, indigenous people have been subjected to and um the Yaqui movement is also which is on the other side of the country in the northwest of Mexico um, is resisting um, similar forces of their water being taken from them and dams being constructed and aqueducts being constructed. That is destroying this amazing river called the Yaqui River. And in collaboration with them and some of our contacts in that community, because it's there's different tribes, there's different, there's different pueblos um, uh, in the Yaqui Nation. Um, but some of our activist colleagues and comrades there, we built this band and we're, you know, it's sort of meant to be a a, a piece of dialogue between um, activist movements and especially like African-American activist movements in the United States with indigenous resistance um, in the Americas at large.
0: Tell me about Mirror Butterfly.
1: Yeah, so Mirror Butterfly, it's um really significant to us because, uh, we wanted to create a musical that was actually like telling, you know, telling the stories of, um, women activists and women that are like causing, um, spark or a change. And, um, so we interviewed, um, three women. One is from the Yaqui nation, uh, Lourdes Anguamea and she helped us um put words in the in yoeme and and put words to a butterfly that is about to become extinct that it's really significant in in the yaqui nation and uh and we also interviewed mama c and she she was a former black panther uh she's now living in tanzania and uh she she talked about the glaciers she talks about how they are um, you know the 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 climate change is affecting the glaciers and the way they are producing food now and so um you know having that perspective was to us really really important and we also interviewed um assisi aslan and she's part of the kurdish movement and these are all women that are you know fighting for freedom and and, and their, their, their right to exist, you know, and outside of the capitalist system. So we, we combined these stories and, and that's how we created Mirror Butterfly.
2: And the, the skeleton of the plot or of the, the way that the story progressed was, was based off of um, this Zapatista Mayan parable Uh, which is a metaphor for colonialism and indigenous resistance. It's the story of a sword, which um, this sword arrives in this environment, which is the new world or, you know, quote unquote, the new world is, um, you know, modern day Mexico. And it chops down a tree, um, uh, which is which were like the previous sort of state like societies or states that existed in the America's before. Um, Columbus came and genocided the majority of the inhabitants. It then attacks a stone which weakens it, and the stone is sort of like this underground resistance that continues to the present day. Um, And then it gets washed away by water, which is the moment that we're hopefully living through now, which is um, when these movements build an alternative and can finally reclaim their land and their culture and their form of development.
1: surge
3: and pollution Water
1: is the weakest
3: Good
1: I fling myself into the waterways and poison all your
3: creatures
1: making you terrified and sick. You can't resist my blood force trauma toxins. The tree is dying, the stone and mushrooms cry out until the water rises up, reflected in a 4 mirror butterfly. She How
0: did you take that and reflect it in the music?
2: Yeah, the music is hard because I mean, like as musicians, you know, I mean, we'd be like lying if we said, oh, you know, <laughs> all you have to do is write lyrics and everything is like revolutionary. You know, I mean, it's like music has its own life and its own autonomy and people can relate to it however they want, you know, and, you know, we can't tell people that when they hear a saxophone chord, you know, that means like fight the power. I mean, that might mean that they had a you know a hard day on the subway it's not like a direct you know it's not a declarative statement right it's like an invitation to participate in something um but we hope that the invitation is felt you know we hope that the music that we write is very inclusive um not just of non-western instruments and um people from different backgrounds and different disciplines you know we work with people from opera people from R&B and hip hop and soul and funk uh we work with um one of our you know the musicians we love working with the most her name is Yang Jin she's a pipa player based in Pittsburgh who's toured with Yo-Yo Ma um and um the pipa being a really fundamental instrument to Chinese opera is something that my mentor Fred Ho would write music for and orchestrate a lot and so i had some experience working with it um but we also write music that's like in ta- odd time signatures that explores, um, you know, atonality, tonality, um, free improvisation, as well as things that are really like, OK, this is like grooving and funky. And um, we don't think those things are mutually exclusive. Like we think that actually we can create more inviting music and more, um, I don't know, like infectious um, grooves and rhythms and uh, something to dance to in on time signatures with irregular instrumentation that reflects this kind of like global post-colonial comments. Um, and so we don't really, you know, like to us, the idea that, you know, oh, we can't, you know, if we write something in 13, it's like heady and abstract. And no, it's like, actually it's an invitation to break with um, like all of these things that oppress us, you know, and imagine a new version of ourselves.
0: Do you consider Mirror Butterfly a form of climate protest?
2: I do think it has concrete steps for action. Um, you know, it invites people to learn about these social movements, you know, that are not receiving funding from non-government organizations that are, you know, very marginalized both in international and domestic in their domestic places, and they're providing really concrete radical solutions to um, how to work through this. And all of the c- sales of the CD, um, which came out after we finished the production, um, support Yaki um, autonomous schools, uh, radio stations actually, and different, you know, initiatives in their territory. So we're hoping to build this kind of, you know, like we're hoping to build the economic circuit that we also want to a- emphasize as an important part of like moving forward. So I think, yeah, it's protest, it's prayer, it's prophecy, and hopefully it's a small path forward.
1: Yeah. And also, I want to mention that the school's name is and kids learn um, different uh, instruments and art, form, art forms in their own language in Yoeme. So we thought it was super important to um, support this like, um, project.
0: Why do you think music is such an effective tool for political and social movements?
1: probably music glows like it glues everything together, I think um his you through music, you can um formulate ideas that are difficult to digest, I think, but through music it makes it flow <laughs> um so it's a vehicle to. Not only create, but also, yeah, to create a a, a new way of of existing, right? Is um, at least to us, you know, that it's that it's something that we that that helps us move through through life and and share share our lives and concepts, you know.
0: That was Ben Barson and Hizal Rodriguez from the Afro-Yaki Music Collective. While the Afro-Yaki Music Collective makes protest music, author James Sullivan writes about it. In his book, Which Side Are You On?, 20th Century American History in 100 Protest Songs, Sullivan takes a look at popular songs related to different social movements in the U.S., like the civil rights movement and the anti-nuclear movement. He covers songs like Billie Holiday's Strange Fruit and Woody Guthrie's This Land is Your Land. He shares anecdotes about how they were written and how impactful they became. In a chapter about songs from the environmentalist movement, he mainly writes about songs with lyrics against pollution and pesticides, from the 1970s. Although it's not necessarily a protest song, Sullivan says one of the most important albums to the environmentalist movement ever is actually a record of whale songs. mentioned the songs of a humpback whale album. Mm
3: -hmm.
0: Tell me about that story.
3: Mm -hmm. So right around 1970, uh, there were a couple of pioneering oceanographic researchers who were first documenting the idea that humpback whales, quote unquote, talk to each other by singing. Uh, And uh, these researchers recorded the whale songs. And then someone got the brilliant idea to put them out on a recording. And there ended up being a few recordings of humpback whale songs. But one in particular, uh, I think it was released in 1970, if I remember correctly, um, became sort of a phenomenon. Uh, And at the time, you would have found a lot of college students who actually owned that record. It was reissued several times, it was picked up by a major label, first of all, uh, after coming out on an independent label. And then it was released um, in a science magazine a few years later as what was called a flexi-disc, which is like sort of a plastic, uh, you know, insert into a magazine that you can play uh, as a record. It was kind of consistently revived uh, over a period of several years in the 70s. And those who were around in those years will remember that the Save the Whales campaign was an enormous step towards this idea that we needed to, you know, we as human beings needed to save the planet in any way we could, Um, really sort of helped kickstart the whole environmental movement and the whole Earth Day movement.
0: Tell me about the environmentalist protest songs that you touch on in the book.
3: So this chapter about the environment um, ranges from the Beach Boys um, to a song that was basically written for the first Earth Day by the folk singer Tom Paxton Um, to um, Joni Mitchell's Big Yellow Taxi, pretty often cited as one of the, you know, sort sort of the main standard bearers for environmental protest pop songs. Marvin Gaye's Mercy Mercy Me, uh, which which was on his, you know, incredible What's Going On album. And then I also included a song by Michael Jackson, uh, Earth Song, uh, the talking heads from the 80s, nothing but flowers, which is kind of an ironic approach to writing a protest song. So, you know, essentially um, a sort of a cross section of popular music of the last half a century or so.
0: In the foreword, you mention that the greatest environmental song in history is Marvin Gaye's Mercy, Mercy Me, The Ecology. What about that song makes it the greatest?
3: Well, among other things, it's on an album that was, uh, you know, is widely considered one of the all-time great albums by anybody in any style of music. Um, But it's also just sort of Marvin Gaye, he had decided before he made this entire album of protest music that um, he no longer wanted to just be striving to be a pop star, that he had a lot to say about the world around him whether it was mothers losing their sons to the Vietnam War, or, uh, you know, human beings ruining the ecology. And he, you know, as the story goes, uh, Motown was not all that thrilled with him wanting to put this record out. They thought it was uncommercial music and, you know, not becoming of the, what the label was trying to do uh, in those years in terms of selling records. But obviously the the, the album has withstood the the test of time and it is an all time classic. And um, you know, Mercy Mercy Me is a gorgeous song, uh, sort of downbeat song that really expresses the sort of despair that Marvin Gaye was trying to get across.
0: What defines a protest song?
3: (laughs) Well, that was kind of the point of writing the book to me is that the definition I think should be much broader than it is um, uh, what defines a protest song. you know to me it's any song that addresses a social issue uh head on um we tend to think i think most of us when somebody says the term protest music we tend to think of the 60s we tend to think of you know sort of bob dylan or pete Seeger, a white guy strumming an acoustic guitar and you know ranting against the government or against the war or whatever but um to my mind, there have always been all kinds of protest songs across all forms of popular music, um, going all the way back to there were actually World War One protest, uh, you know, anti-war protest songs. There, you know, in the nineteen twenties, there were several um, sort of big-voiced blues women who sang specifically about uh, the struggle of being a woman. Um, there, there's, there's all kinds of variations on what constitutes a protest song.
0: How does music aid social movements? Why is it so powerful?
3: I think part of the reason that music is so powerful in social movements is that during demonstrations, if you're just listening to one speaker after another, I think that people who might be on the fr- people who are not the most committed to the movement, whatever that might be, might feel like they're just being harangued, that they're just be you know being talked at and um, scolded for not doing more. Um, and obviously, the point of any social protest movement is to bring up, bring as many people around to your way of thinking as possible. And uh, music, you know, sort of is our common currency, right? I mean, you know, we can't all agree on very much these days, but we can all agree on what's the number one song at the moment. I mean, because everybody's singing it, you know, I mean, it, that's how it became the number one song. Um, and so it, you know, it's, it's, it's not a new idea that, um, music that singing together brings people together, but, um, yeah, that's clearly, I think, uh, the, the primary reason why music w- works so well, hand in hand with protest movements.
0: What is the state of protest music today from your perspective?
3: about 10 years ago during the Occupy Wall Street movement, I noticed that there were a number of stories saying, wow, the spirit of protest is, you know, sort of um, thriving right now. And it feels like the 60s to some of us who are around, who have been around that long. But, but there was always a, but um, the story, uh, there were several stories that said, but where are all the protest songs? How come we're not getting any classic protest songs like the times they are, are changing? And, to my mind, there were plenty of songs, even during that movement, the Occupy movement, that were speaking directly to it um, and I think that the I think that the secret to why people feel like there 's not as much protest music as there used to be is that the entire culture has fragmented in the 1960s There were a handful of pop music stations, and everybody listened to the top forty stations, so everybody was hearing the same rotation of 40 songs on a weekly basis. And so the whole culture understood what everybody else was paying attention to. Whereas now, uh, in the you know ensuing 50 years, we live in a culture that's totally fragmented. I mean, be- between the internet and cable TV and streaming options and uh, satellite radio, we have a million different um, outlets to choose from. There have been all kinds of uh, incredible protest songs over the last ten years, and some of them have made it to big stages. Whether it's you know Lady Gaga sneaking uh, Woody Guthrie music in, into the Super Bowl halftime show a few years ago, to you know hip hop is a, is an endless source has been for for forty years now of protest. But you know, with the possible exception of the Super Bowl halftime show. Most of the music that's made today is appealing to, you know, sort of a, a sliver of the, of, the, of the population at large.
0: That was James Sullivan, author of Which Side Are You On? 20th Century American History in 100 Protest Songs. As Sullivan notes, protest music is evolving. It's taking root in different genres, like we heard in the EDM remixes of Greta Thunberg's speech. Protest music allows artists like the Afro-Yaki Music Collective to advocate for the political and social movements they're part of. Like it did in the 70s, music unites people who care about the environment and the climate. In the next episode of Disharmony, we'll hear from two nonprofit organizations about how music can really move people to take action against climate change. Thanks for listening. Let us know what you think by tweeting at Disharmony underscore WFUV. Special thanks to the Afro Yucky Music Collective and James Sullivan for being part of the podcast. WFUV's George Bodarki for all his help. Rachel Leesendahl for contributing the cover art. And my dad, Joe Berkseeker for contributing the music. I'm Courtney Berkseeker with WFUV News, and I'll catch you next time on Disharmony, How Music is
3: Responding to Climate Change.